0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries.
1: I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Rachel Harwitz, founder and CEO of Caribou Biosciences. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Great. So to start off, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background, your career journey, and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. I'd say probably the consistent thread in my background and my history is RNA. And I know most people ignore RNA as sort of the weird cousin of DNA, but I always found it quite fascinating. That fascination probably began in high school. I had a very difficult biology teacher freshman year who had extraordinarily high expectations for us. In fact, he did not use the state-issued textbook and instead required us to use a college textbook for his class. We were required to carry out our own experiment as part of the course. However, it was a public high school in Austin, Texas that didn't exactly have a lot of resources, so we had to do the experiment at home. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to study and ultimately ended up reading some of my mother's college biology textbooks. There I stumbled on this theory, this idea that perhaps planaria, these little flatworms can actually store some of their memories in RNA molecules. They are also cannibals. So there was an idea that perhaps by cannibalizing each other they could gain each other's memories through these messenger RNA molecules. I thought that was super cool. I ended up with about 400 planaria on the family dining room table I was not the popular child for that decision and taught a bunch of worms, the maize, fed them to others and and tried to answer this question. Long story short, my my research was inconclusive. I have really no idea what happened, but it it sparked for me a a real interest in this molecule and, and in biology generally. So I had the opportunity to go to Harvard as an undergraduate, and there I studied biological sciences and actually thought I wanted to be an attorney ultimately when I grew up, but had gotten so excited by more of the biology that I was exposed to there. And in particular, the research I was able to do and thought I would stitch together a career by first getting a PhD in the life sciences, then a law degree and ultimately practicing patent law. So from Harvard, I was lucky enough to get to go to UC Berkeley to work on my PhD. And there RNA continued to be the theme I rotated through a few different labs, each of which studied RNA in very different ways. And one of them happened to be Jennifer Doudna's lab. So long story short, I ended up being the first student in her lab to work on CRISPR. I've been working on it ever since. And based on work that some of our colleagues did in in her lab uh, many years ago, we founded Caribou. So obviously I did not become an attorney in fact, I think along the way I realized that patent law is probably not what I want to work on. Though it certainly gave me an appreciation for how important intellectual property is
0: in the biotech space. Do you ever regret not becoming a lawyer?
2: Not at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe we should start a podcast, Legal Twenty Fifty. You know, <laughs> cool. Um, you know, you know. I think one of the things that uh, really inspires me about your journey is that I think. You were among one of the first sort of PhD scientists who came out of the academic world to start a biotech company. You know, obviously in the tech world, that seems to be a little bit more common, right? Over the past few decades, but in biotech, it's very few and far between. Yeah, would certainly love to hear what that was like and how you also see leadership in biotech evolving in the modern era as well. I'd say if I had any appreciation
2: for how hard this was going to be, maybe I would have had different ideas about doing it in the first place. So I think there was some value in my relative naivete as we got started because I just dove in headfirst and threw everything I had at it. You know, I think because I came in with no leadership expertise in terms of running and building biotech companies, I came in immediately knowing that I needed help and putting all of the emphasis on team and expertise and being willing to put up a hand and ask for help. And so I actually think that ended up being a real value driver for us as an organization was that focus initially on finding great people. And whether that was through the hires that we could make, people we recruited to the board of directors, someone who was just willing to sit with me over a cup of coffee for an hour. You know, there are a lot of people who contributed early on. I also think part of my journey, at least for me, was normalized by being here in the Bay Area where so many of my friends are company founders and company leaders, and not in biotech, in in other sectors. But I could easily go to dinner with friends where everybody else had their own company too. And so I I think that helped um, make some of what I was doing both more normal and less scary. I do think it speaks to an interesting opportunity in our industry. I think there are a lot of people who have deep scientific expertise that ends up being really the crux of a new organization, of a new company, and finding ways to really get them involved in more than just an advisory, you know, once a month capacity, I think can be really important in terms of building and growing these organizations.
0: That's awesome. And at least in that lens, any initial sort of pieces of advice you'd share with other 26-year-olds who might be completing their PhD in, in a lab and getting excited about the potential bedside impact of their technology?
2: Yeah, maybe a a
0: few pieces.
2: One thing that I think helped us a lot in the early days is we actually built a board of directors prior to raising our Series A financing. That allowed us to bring in people with deep expertise, in our case, both in our science area, as we thought, how do you take CRISPR and and make products? But also people who had company building and, and organizational management experience to help lay some of the foundation ahead of investors coming into the company. And I think that was really useful for us. Certainly for me personally, I learned a tremendous amount from them about how to think about some of the moving parts of an organization. And I think they helped us make better decisions about how to finance the company in the early days. Maybe another piece is to not worry too much about exactly what the company valuation is and how much money you raise. You know, I think looking backwards, that's something that's really easy to agonize over as a founder. The reality is you're going to need way more money than you think. You're going to need a lot faster than you think. And so raising what you can when you can allows you to really execute on those ideas, find all the ways that's going to go sideways and try to solve them before you run out of money again.
1: Great advice, Rachel. I've lived that myself too. In terms of founding a board pre-Series A what were some of the characteristics you were looking for? And also, how did you go about attracting board members, you know, pre-series A?
2: Yeah. So I I would say one of the challenges for me personally was that I had no network that was super relevant to what we were trying to do. So I immediately was leaning on the network of my co-founders and of Jennifer Doudna in particular to meet people who could be helpful. Um, So she introduced me to someone who had a lot of company building experience, who was actually himself at the time starting a new company that he is also still the CEO of today, and who was willing to come in and and help provide a lot of that experience and expertise that he had gained. Part of it was also looking at the, at the time, nascent CRISPR field and thinking through who might actually have already lived and breathed some of this divide between CRISPR as a science and CRISPR as a technology for making products and solving problems. And so we were able to bring in someone who had recently left industry where his lab had actually done some of the foundational work, even understanding what CRISPR systems do in the first place and had moved back into academia and, and could help bring some of that perspective to the room as well.
1: And Rachel, given your background, if you would please oblige us and school us a little bit in CRISPR technology for those that might not have been exposed to it previously.
2: Yeah, absolutely. CRISPR is a genome editing technology, which means it's a way to go inside of living cells and change their DNA sequences. When we spend time with people outside of biotech, I refer to it as the Microsoft Word of the genome but then immediately have to make clear that it's nowhere near as sophisticated as Microsoft Word. Basically, at the end of the day, it's a fancy way to break DNA, to make a cut at a specific site in the genome. And then from there, we really rely on the cells themselves, because if their DNA remains broken, they die. And so they have a few different tools in their toolbox for how to fix the break. And how they fix it ultimately results in either gene deletions or gene insertions. And so we can use this technology to edit genomes in in a wide
1: variety of ways. Great, Rachel. And so let's now take that a step further and talk a little bit about differentiation between gene and cell therapy and some of the work that you all are doing at Caribou.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously CRISPR has incredibly broad potential for all the things you could do with it and the, the problems you can solve using it. At Caribou, we specifically focus on using our CRISPR technology to develop cell therapies for cancer. And so what we do is take advantage of the fact that the immune system can be part of the toolbox for finding and fighting cancer. And what we do specifically is use our CRISPR technology to edit immune cells like T-cells or natural killer cells to empower them with the ability to identify and hopefully ultimately kill tumor cells. So we develop both CAR-Ts as well as CAR-NKs, and we develop what's called allogeneic or off-the-shelf versions of these, where we're actually taking healthy cells from healthy donors and use genome editing to empower them with the ability to identify the tumors to make them safe, to grant them other attributes, and then use that as a product candidate.
0: On that topic, you know, we've certainly seen in like the small molecule world, how, you know, CMC and manufacturing, for example, has become sort of tried and true. And I think biologics is getting to that same point, but obviously in the gene therapy and cell therapy space, there's certainly a lot of CMC and, and manufacturing challenges ahead. Curious if you have any insight on that, given that you work sort of at the intersection between both those modalities.
2: Manufacturing is so critical in the cell therapy space and it's quite sophisticated. You're absolutely right that it's an emerging area from a, a CMC perspective. There's obviously a lot of money that's been invested in this space recently. So even today, compared to just a few years ago, there are a lot more CDMOs, there's a lot more capacity, but I still think it's early days. You know, As, as we think about the promise and potential of some of these cell therapies, it's really unlocking scale. And so that means being able to make some of the underlying reagents at a scale that no one has even contemplated before. And then ultimately creating the supply chains for making these medicines at scale, freezing them and storing them, shipping them around the globe. It's not straightforward. And and there's a lot of work that's being done to drive this forward. You know, certainly as, as we think about it at Caribou, the manufacturing process is so critical to what we do. We have invested heavily internally in a process development team where our our colleagues, you know, inside the four walls own making that process, you know, optimizing it, and then ultimately teaching it to our CMO partners who make
0: the GMP materials for our phase one study. It's awesome. I noticed recently that Carrie was sort of struck a few key partnerships with some major pharma companies any chance uh, you could sort of share some of the origins of said uh, activities and sort of how those came about?
2: You know, our next generation CRISPR technology that we're developing at Caribou has tremendously broad potential. And we realize that as a small company, there are only so many things we can do at once. And so partnership is a really exciting way for us to broaden that footprint, to do more for patients faster And so we were very pleased last month to announce a partnership deal with AbbVie. Uh, We're working with them to develop two new CAR-T therapies against targets that they've identified. So this is above and beyond the programs that we've already been working on. So obviously a very exciting way to continue to execute on uh, new medicines for patients in need. And of course, also a, a really nice external validation of our
0: CRISPR technology platform. And just for my knowledge, is it safe to say that some of the, mo- the indications you're focused on right now are oncology related? Actually,
2: everything we're working on is, is oncology related. Okay. The first few programs are specifically focused on liquid tumors on hematologic malignancies like non-Hodgkin lymphoma and multiple myeloma. Liquid tumors are where CAR T's have been most successful thus far. And that's our initial focus as well. However, I should mention, you know, of course, we're very motivated to try to do something for solid tumors as well. I forget the exact numbers. It's something like 90% of cancer cases in the United States are solid tumors. And yet we realize that's not going to be a place where CAR-Ts are the easy answer. And so actually at Caribou, that's why we've started to work on natural killer cells as well. So people may be less familiar with NKs. I'm not an immunologist. I was certainly less familiar with NKs as well. They're part of the innate immune system. um, And we think they're really attractive for solid tumor targeting because on their own, they can get there. And they're also inherently allogeneic. So unlike a T cell, we don't have to do anything to make it safe to take one from one person and give it to a patient. And so we see them as a really compelling start point for cell therapy manufacturing, where we can take that starting biology and then use a number of genome edits to really drive the anti-tumor potential of these cell therapies. So to do that, we actually start with iPSCs. So we've developed the ability to edit iPSCs in a number of ways, and then differentiate them into natural killer cells with
0: anti-tumor potential. That's awesome. As you sort of describe at least the scientific potential of CRISPR, especially as it applies to cell therapies, any chance you could comment on the intersection or how one could leverage both of those modalities outside the field of oncology? Yeah, big picture, I would say any
2: market with bio-based products could be changed by CRISPR technology. And so that's lots of other therapeutic modalities, which I'll, I'll come back to in more detail in a moment as well as so many other spaces. you know, We're seeing CRISPR being used to edit plant genomes or animal genomes for agricultural applications. It's obviously become a bread and butter tool for basic research, anywhere from asking simple one-off questions to doing incredibly complicated high-throughput screening, lots of industrial applications as people are engineering microbes that have never been addressed with other recombineering tools before. So there's a never-ending laundry list of cool things you can do with CRISPR. Certainly within therapeutics, oncology is the tip of the iceberg. Beyond the cancer care space, there are lots of opportunities to use CRISPR technology, both for cell therapies to address other diseases, such as autoimmune disorders or genetic diseases. Of course, in the case of a genetic disease, there's something really attractive about being able to actually fix the genome, and fix the mutation that causes the genetic disease in the first place. And that's certainly thats something that some of our peers in the genome editing field have made some pretty exciting progress on recently.
1: And speaking of progress, Rachel, congratulations on the recent fundraise. You just announced a, a large fundraise. Curious how you plan to deploy that capital and what it was like raising in the midst of a pandemic.
2: Yeah, thank you. we were really pleased to put together our, our Series C to the tune of $115 million. I've never flown so little to raise so much. You know, I think the Zoom environment for us, like for so many, has actually been incredibly efficient. You know, from a capital raising perspective, it's given us the chance to meet with probably far more investors than we could have if we had to fly around the globe to see everybody. And I think it certainly helps drive the process a lot faster too. Now, I I should point out only parts of our organization feel that the Zoom world is wonderful. Obviously, I think it's really challenging that we can't sit in the boardroom together and stare at the whiteboard and and brainstorm in the way that we might used to. And certainly for my many colleagues who are in research and development, the impact on the footprint in the lab and the social distancing and things like that has has certainly changed what science looks like. But purely from a, a capital raising perspective, we have found this to be a pretty compelling environment. And I certainly hope that even as the world starts to return to a new normal, that some of this virtual environment continues to stick with us because it is so effective and efficient. As we think about using this capital, it's really about driving our programs forwards and continuing to invest in in new technology development. So our lead program today, which we call CB10, is an off-the-shelf CAR-T targeting a a tumor antigen called CD19 for the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We recently initiated that Phase one study, and so certainly we'll be investing heavily in moving that forwards. And then we have a pipeline of preclinical programs that we'll start to bring forwards. The next of which we'll be filing an IND next year for our multiple myeloma program.
1: That's uh, very exciting, Rachel. How's your thinking evolved around remote work during the pandemic, and what do you imagine will happen, you know, let's say later on this year when most folks hopefully are vaccinated?
2: We were dogmatic pre-pandemic. If you worked for Caribou, you worked at Caribou um, with only very limited exceptions. And I think I certainly have learned a lot that maybe that wasn't the right answer. I think it's clear that in some settings, remote work can be incredibly efficient and effective. But I also think the pendulum has swung far too far in in that direction. You know, I, I think probably for our organization, some happy compromise in the middle will be better. I don't think we have a perfect answer for exactly what that looks like, but I'd like to think that our team can balance both on-site work and,
0: when appropriate, remote work to keep people happy and healthy and to be as productive as possible. In that context, as you're in the Bay Area, does that mean, forward-looking, the majority of your team will still be sort of geographically in a similar location, or does it just mean people will fly more frequently, uh, you know, for company meetings, et cetera? Any insight into how you see that manifesting?
2: And the majority of my colleagues work in the lab. And so they're really tethered to our physical location and the ability to be there. So that sort of takes some of the complexity out of the equation for us. But obviously there are a growing number of people on the team who don't work in the lab and could theoretically work from other locations. Uh, nonetheless, the vast majority are, are still here in the Bay Area. So I think it does open our eyes to the possibility to tap into talents that might not be here and that might be somewhere else where we instead use airplanes to solve for in-person meetings when needed.
1: Great. Well, Rachel, on on that note, thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing your inspiring entrepreneurial journey. Seems like a very exciting time to be working and recruiting for talent at Caribou. So congratulations on, on all the progress and look forward to having you back in the future.
2: Thank you both so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.